good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, we'll make our way through verse 22 this morning. Um, Just as way of introduction, as we approach um, this particular section, really what we want to do is we want to examine this um, largely in light of New Testament text. Interestingly enough, the text that we'll deal with today is actually a a moment in Moses' life that is more dealt with in the New Testament than almost any other moment. And it seems as if it would be somewhat of a peculiar passage or a peculiar moment in the life of Moses. But nonetheless, Hebrews takes a a great deal of time to deal with it in the very same way. Stephen, in his sermon, uh, makes, makes a clear point and a clear reference to the text that we're dealing with this morning. So what I'd like to do is I would like to lay out really three observations and reach one final conclusion. And the three observations are rather simple, just to give you somewhat of where we're going. Uh, The first observation from this text is that the ministry of Moses is going to be foreshadowed. As you look at this um, small section of scripture, you'll notice that everything that will take place in Moses's life and Moses's ministry will essentially be laid out in a few short verses. Secondly, in this text and its parallels, we will see the faith of Moses. And this is important for us to understand as we're making our way to examine the man Moses, is we must understand that Moses was, without question, looking past himself. And the reason, the reason this is so important for us is because if we deny this, we will have to deny the clear teaching of the book of Hebrews. We will have to say that uh, Hebrews is simply adding on a bit of flourish to Moses's life, as opposed to giving us great Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit inspired insight into his life and into his faith. And lastly, we will examine essentially the way that Moses foreshadows, the way that Moses attempts to deliver by the strength of his own, by the strength of his own hand. And we will ultimately see that he was found wanting in his strength. And so with that, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, and we'll make our way through verse 22. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Raoul, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left, why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. 
she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom for he said, I have, given a, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come looking at the brief moment in the life of your servant Moses. Father, would you help us as we examine this to, to understand what you're aiming to communicate to us? Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that Moses' hand is not strong enough to save. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that Moses was looking past himself and Father, that we may take from him an example. Lord, that there is no strength in our own hands to deliver. And Lord, even more so than that, that we must look past, that we must look into the promised Messiah and there place all of our hope and all of our confidence. For apart from that, there is no salvation and deliverance. It's in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So between the narrative of Exodus chapter two and Exodus chapter, chapter two, verse 11, there's a pretty decent gap of time just to give you somewhat of an introduction to the text. Uh, we're looking at Moses as a fully grown man. The New Testament recognizes that he is 40 years old in this particular case. And Moses being full grown, uh, a lot has taken place. And I wanna somewhat fill in um, some blanks here. As we're looking at Moses's life, we understand that Moses was entrusted with his birth mother to be his wet nurse. That is to say that Moses spent the majority of his early years, that is at least until the age of four, with his birth mother. And we can presume based upon the fact that Moses very clearly knew that his brother was Aaron, that he actually did have some familial ties and some familial relationships with his actual birth family. And the question has to be asked, how does Moses have such familiarity with the things of God? If we're gonna take Hebrew Hebrews 11 at its word, then we need to understand that Moses, even in this moment, is looking past himself and considering the very promises of God. And so between Exodus 2.10 and Exodus 2.11, you have ample years of Moses's life in which the promises of God would have been spoken over him by his very clearly believing mother. It's made reference to, again, in the book of Hebrews, that, that Moses's parents, by faith, hid this child, protected him so as to see him delivered from the exposure that is being tossed into the Nile. And so as we enter into this, we need to understand that Moses is not disconnected from the promises that were given at the conclusion of the book of Genesis. These promises are continued to be laid or washed over him as he is maturing and as he is growing. It is extremely likely that in the life of Moses, he did not then abandon his mother and his uh, natural brothers and sisters at the age of four, but instead that he would continue to make visits there and likely continue to hear of the promises of God that were given to Abraham and to Isaac. Isaac and to Jacob. And as we make our way into this particular text, we can't lose the idea that Moses is still here in this moment, hanging on to particular promises of God. We cannot read the book of Exodus as if every Israelite has abandoned the promises given to the patriarchs. Instead, we understand that there are those who are still looking forward by faith. Moses' parents being a prime example of this, and then most certainly, as we will see in this moment, Moses himself. But the first observation we need to make about this text is that in this text, the ministry of Moses is foreshadowed. And the reason this is important is because two particular categories are set up. And as these categories are set up, the two categories being redeemer and ruler, these two categories will run throughout all of the pages of scripture, launching all the way into obviously the New Testament. And so let's examine just for a moment, the ministry of Moses as it is being foreshadowed. We see him, we see Moses aiming to protect and to deliver his people. Exodus 2, 11 through 12 rather simply puts it. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. 
And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. I want you to notice the simple phrasing that you find here. You notice in this language that Moses is actually identifying himself with the people of Israel. And not only is he identifying himself with the people of Israel, it is very likely that when he says, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, that word is actually brother, one of his brothers. It's very likely that Moses is even taking into consideration that he's not just an Israelite, but he's a Levite. And he's looking at a Levite man being beaten and ultimately seemingly almost being beaten to death. In verse 12, it says this, he looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. In this small moment, we see the role of redeemer being set up. That is to say the role of deliverer. From this point forward, you will notice that the ministry of Moses is actually highlighted over and over and over again as one who will deliver, as one who will redeem, as one who will bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. They will bring them out of the land of slavery. But it not only identifies the fact that the ministry of Moses will be one of a deliverer and a redeemer, it also demonstrates the way in which God will deliver his people from the land of Egypt. Notice, notice how Moses delivers the Israelite. He, noted, he, he delivers him first and foremost by striking down the Egyptian and hiding him in the sand. It is quite clear what you notice that Moses reaches over and because of his desire to redeem, he strikes down the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. Now, there is also in this text quite clearly an imperfection of Moses. And I do want us to take special notes of the imperfections of Moses. And I need us to understand that Moses wrote of his own imperfections. You are not reading a secondary author giving a, giving a biographical account of Moses. Moses is making sure that you know that he is imperfect. And this is so important for us, even as we're reading in the pages of the New Testament, you will notice over and over again that the Pharisees hail the day of Moses as the golden age. Saints, Moses understood that his age was not the golden age. He understood that there was something better, that there was someone superior that was ultimately coming. And this is why he was so precise to write not just about this particular imperfection, but a number of other trespasses, including the one that would prevent him from entering into the promised land. And so from this text, we see Moses aiming to protect and deliver his people, ultimately delivering his people through a form of judgment against an Egyptian. We also see the imperfections of Moses in the fact that he took it upon himself to strike down this Egyptian. There are pages upon pages of commentators who want to argue that Moses was not in sin in this particular case. It is so interesting to me how hard we fight to protect mere men. Brothers and sisters, Moses struck down an Egyptian without the command of God and simply sought to take vengeance. As we see quite clearly in the pages of the New Testament, we are forbidden from taking vengeance in and of ourselves. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And Moses, instead of trusting the Lord and looking forward to the deliverance that he will ultimately bring, takes up his sword and strikes down this Egyptian man. And so we see him aiming to protect and deliver his people. We see his imperfections. We also see Moses aiming to judge and settle the disputes of the people. Exodus 2.13, this is where we will see the concept of ruler birth. We see Redeemer in his desire to deliver the particular Hebrew, likely a Levite, and he does so by striking dead the Egyptian. And then secondarily, we see his aim to rule, that is to judge. 
Exodus 2.13, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together and he said to the man in the wrong, notice that simple word, he says to the man in the wrong, he is already distinguishing, frankly, the very same way that we will see him distinguish as he is set up in the wilderness as a judge and he is looking at the individual who's in the wrong and he's telling him, why are you doing this? He is both indicting him and correcting him. And so we see that he, in verse 13, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? This is a setting up of a concept of a premise that there is going to be a ruler and a judge over the people of Israel. And so in these small two verses, we see an indication of a redeemer and one who will come to rule. We also see a forecast in the way in which Moses is flat out rejected. And if we can read through the wilderness wanderings, there is a common thread and a common theme. Moses has no right to rule over us. Exodus 2.14, listen to what the, what the Israelite says. He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? This is a good question. And the reason it's a good question is because oftentimes we read it with, um, with eyes already with, with the presumption that someone has made him judge and ruler over them. But the reality is that at this particular point in Moses' life, God has not set him up for that particular task. He is reaching out and taking it through his own might and means. And so we see them reject. And so we see quite clearly the indication that these people are going to be perpetually obstinate toward Moses, toward really anyone who is in a position of authority. I would say a sin that still continues to this very day. But finally, we see Moses rise and deliver a people who are not of Israel's stock. This is a rather interesting, uh, interesting turn of events as you make your way into Exodus chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. You'll notice in this text, it is obviously narrative that's meant to drive the story forward. It's also meant to give you a little bit about Moses and who he will marry, but it is not without significant meaning in regard to the typing out, the laying out of the ministry of Moses. If you look at Exodus 2, 17 through 19, listen to the words, of, uh, the words of Zipporah specifically here. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flocks. When they came home to their father, Raul, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. You will notice a clear correlation in the language there. The concept of a deliverer has come and this deliverer has freed not just an Israelite, but in particular, a people who were not a part of the people of Israel, that his ministry seems to extend past just the Israelite people and even into uh, surrounding nations. Now, we see this forecast, I think, quite clearly in the way that Moses would deliver not only the Israelites, but he would also deliver the Egyptians who believed on the true Lord uh, based upon the signs and wonders that were given in the plagues. And so you see this brief foreshadowing of the concept of ruler and redeemer. It is not hard to carry this forward so as to see that we are in need of a better ruler and redeemer. We are in need of one who has right to rule and who has the ability to redeem. In this particular occasion, Moses has not been given the office of ruler and redeemer, and yet he so chooses to take it up by his own hand and ultimately by force, which we'll deal with here in a moment. But I do want us to notice and not leave behind the concept here that there is going to be set up a ruler and redeemer. And his ministry will be to deliver a particular people through judgment. And then secondarily, he will rule and reign over them as a judge, as a king by the time that we make our way into the Davidic covenant. And so these two premises are offices that Moses will hold for a very temporary period of time. 
And it's important for us to notice this, especially again, as we make our way into the pages of the New Testament. There are so many who are longing to go back to previous days. They want Moses as their redeemer, as their ruler, as their judge. Or perhaps it is that they want David as their king. But hear me, brothers and sisters, these offices are set up not so that we can look back to the shadowy men who filled them with great fault, but instead that we can look forward to the promised one who will fulfill them with perfection. We have a ruler and a redeemer who delivers, not based upon his own self-appointment, as Hebrews says, but he was appointed to that very particular task as our high priest, as our redeemer and deliverer. And he has fulfilled that role with absolute perfection. He is indeed the better Moses. And so every single time we come to an office, we notice something particular that God has handed to Moses or that God is demonstrating through Moses. We should see that there is a ruler being set. Up. We should see that there is a deliverer set up, and we should understand wholeheartedly that Moses will only be able to sit in that office for a very brief period of time. And as he sits there for a very brief period of time, he will do so imperfectly. But we must always be looking forward to the one who will, who will fulfill it with perfection. We speak of prophet, we speak of priest, we speak of king. And in all of these categories, we understand that Christ is the fulfillment of these offices, that Christ is the eternal priest, that Christ is the true Davidic king, that, tri- that Christ is the better word, the prophetic word indeed. And we must also understand that when ruler and redeemer come, it can only be Christ who will fulfill this office with perfection. And it is only Christ who will be able to deliver, not from temporary enemies, but from the great enemy of sin and death. And so we see the ministry of Moses foreshadowed. We also see in the ministry of Moses foreshadowed the concept of a ruler and redeemer that will ultimately come to deliver the people, to deliver these individual truly elect people into everlasting life. And so we see this foreshadowed in the ministry of Moses, but also, and most importantly, we understand that Moses, as he is looking at the concept of ruler and redeemer, is actually understanding that a deliverer will come and even perhaps understands that God is setting him up to be that deliverer. And yet God has not placed him in that office as of yet, at least in the narrative where we find ourselves. So we see the ruler, redeemer set up. We see this premise that's laid out for us. But secondarily, we see in this text it's par- and its parallels in the New Testament, we see Moses' faith. And this is really important for us. You can go ahead and turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll look at verse 24, 25, and 26. But these are worth having in your mind as you're working through the narrative of Moses. We must not neglect the clear teaching of the New Testament as we are interpreting Old Testament passages. As we were preparing this, I had two men with us with me as I was laboring through this. And I asked them the rather simple question, do we believe the book of Hebrews? And if we believe the book of Hebrews, it means that as we read back into Exodus chapter two, we read back true insights of Moses as he is actually walking in the particular acts of our text this morning. And that being the case, there's a couple things we must notice about Moses's faith. That is to say what Moses is thinking and what Moses is even believing in even this moment of, I would say, great error in sin, that he is not being faithful to the commands of God, though he is indeed looking forward to something better. So first in this text, we notice that that he delights to be called a Hebrew. He identifies them as his people. Now, the reason this is so interesting and the reason this is so important is because for him to identify with a Hebrew, he must first and foremost renounce a previous identification. Look at what it says. As we're looking at this, I kind of want to break into three categories just real quickly. The three categories are, we see it in what he rejected, we see it in what he delighted in, and lastly, we see it in what he was aiming for. 
So first, we see it in what he rejected. That is, we see Moses' faith in what he rejected. Moses refused, according to Hebrews eleven twenty four. he refused the pagan identity of Pharaoh's daughter's son. Hebrews eleven twenty four. by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, this is an outright rejection of a pagan identity. We even really see this in the name that he gives to his first son when he speaks of being a sojourner in a foreign land. That's an interesting identification there because he grew up in that land. He was born in that land. He was cared for in that land. His mother cared for him. His adoptive mother, that is Pharaoh's daughter, cared for him. It's interesting that he identifies Egypt and he has been a sojourner in a foreign land. He does not identify the promised land or blessing or anything of that nature in Egypt. Instead, he understands that that is the land in which they were sojourning as Joseph laid out to us. So the very first thing that we see Moses do is he rejects, I mean, flat out rejects the identity that he is Pharaoh's daughter's son. You can imagine the boldness that this took. And when I say that we can see his faith by what he rejected, he essentially renounced all worldly affiliation and says, I am not going to be a partaker. I will not be identified with the people of Egypt because he understood that there is something better in the camp of the Israelites and of the Hebrews. But in this renouncement, he is also understanding that the promises of God are about to come to fruition, that he really will deliver his people. And I do not want to be sitting on the side of Egypt when God comes to judge them. Hebrews eleven twenty four again, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Secondly, Hebrews eleven twenty five, Moses rejects the fleeting pleasures of sin, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. You read the narrative in Exodus 2, and it's very easy to miss this. But when Moses rejects his lineage, when Moses rejects his familial ties to Pharaoh's house, he is flat out rejecting all of their idolatry. He is saying, I'm not going to participate with you in the worship of the God of Ra. I'm not going to participate with you in all of this pagan worship and concepts. And I'm not going to participate with you in all of the ways that there is sin and trespass and iniquity and the rejection of the true God. He renounces it all and says, I'd rather be identified with the people of Israel than continue on in the fleeting pleasures of sin. And Hebrews 11, I think, loudly lays out to us the concept of throwing off that which so easily entangles. When Moses says, I'm abandoning the name, I'm abandoning the the manner of life, he is saying there is something superior. There is something better. There is something worth me casting off this identity and this manner of life for. And so he says, I will not continue to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, recognizing that they are indeed fleeting. Finally, Moses despised the wealth and treasures of Egypt. And I could not speak of all the wealth and treasures of Egypt. You are dealing with an astronomically wealthy society. And hear me, Moses very likely, depending on who you set up as Pharaoh in this narrative, is very likely next in line to the throne. If the history accounts, at least in Josephus' idea, is that he, Pharaoh had one daughter who was childless and that this childless daughter adopts a Hebrew boy. And he is then given the option, given the ability, perhaps to some degree, to make his way to the very throne of Egypt, much like Joseph did. 
And yet what he says is, I reject all of the wealth of Egypt. I reject the title. I reject the prestige. I reject all of the, the, the fleeting pleasures of sin. And instead, I will consider something better. Notice what Hebrews eleven twenty six 26 says. And man, it's loud. He considered, Moses considered, the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And again, this is why I asked those men, do, you, do we believe Hebrews 11? Do we believe that Moses, as he's looking out and abandoning all of his lineage, all of his wealth, all of the pleasures that Egypt would offer him, do we believe that he's simply abandoning those simply because he could be named among the Israelites? Or do we believe Hebrews chapter 11 when it says that he desired to bear the reproach of Christ and not even bear the reproach of Christ, he said, it's more valuable than all the wealth of Egypt. Should you gather all the wealth of the world, brothers and sisters, we should all be glad to echo Moses in this. Because if I have, if I have everything the world has to offer, but I do not have Christ, I am uniquely impoverished. If I have Christ and none of the wealth of the world, I am rich beyond measure. And as we examine this brief moment in Moses's life, we see him reject pagan identity, reject wealth, reject the treasures of Egypt, and reject the fleeting pleasures of sin because there is something superior. And as we look at this brief moment in Moses' life, we must see that rejection, but we must see why he rejects it. And this is so crucial to, the, to our understanding of literally the Christian life. And hear me, I am making the argument that Moses is living to some degree the Christian life in Exodus 2. I do not believe that he is having faith in something and cannot be named a Christian. He is bearing and looking forward to bearing the reproach of Christ. In all intents and purposes, I see a man who has the spirit of God as he has believed on the promised son. And so as we walk through this, not only has he rejected these things, he chooses particular things, chooses better things. First, Moses chooses to be identified with the Hebrews instead of the Egyptian. Hebrews eleven twenty four. Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why did he refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter? Because he desired the better identity. He said, I'd rather be named among the Israelites. Why? Not because the Israelites are so wonderful, but because their God is, that there is a superiority to their God. Moses is about to watch unfold the God of Israel lay underfoot every God of Egypt. All of these false idols, all of these wicked gods that are coming against the Holy One will be placed under the boot of the God of Israel. And Moses will watch this unfold. And even then, as he's thinking about identification, he says, I do not want to be named with Egypt. I want to be named with my father Abraham. I want the promises that were given to him, as we'll see here in a moment. And so we see him delight to be called a Hebrew, not an Egyptian. Secondly, Moses chooses to be mistreated as opposed to enjoy the pleasures of sin. Hebrews eleven twenty five 25, again, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. This has been a constant in the Christian life since Genesis 3. And the reality is, that there is great joy, and I do mean this, do not downgrade my word, there is great joy in bearing reproach for the sake of Christ. There is great joy in being mistreated, as it were, by the world in the camp of the people of God. And if I could say anything, I would rather suffer with the saints than prosper with the world. 
If I'm gonna suffer with the saints, I know who my head is. I know who my redeemer is. I know who my ruler is. And should all the world come against me, it matters not. I have a great king. I have one who is rescued, who is saved. And I would gladly be named amongst the saints. And this is the heart cry. This is the heartbeat of every individual who has been born again and brought into the family of God because we share a unique bond, that blood of Christ being that great bond. And it is worth more than all the gold and all the riches of the world. And so as we see most Moses say, choosing ultimately to be mistreated as opposed to enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin, it is a fool's errand to choose the pleasures of sin over the riches of God. It is a fool's errand. It is uniquely ignorant, forgive my terminology, to say, I'll take the fleeting pleasure, that which will fade in but a moment. And even Moses recognizes this as he's making his way to a number of years either being prosperous in a worldly sense, enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin in Egypt, or going and being mistreated with Israel. And he says, these are not worth comparing. Thirdly, Moses considers the reproach of Christ a great wealth. Hebrews eleven twenty six. 26, he says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. I, I want you to notice the contrast. It is an intentional comparison. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. This is only seen, hear me, this is only seen with the eye of faith. This is only seen with the eye of faith. If we're looking at, and hear me, if you're looking at the church, if you're looking at suffering with the saints, if you're looking at treasure and you're thinking about it and you're looking at it with your carnal fleshly eyes, saints, I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, it is quite clear that sin offers pleasure fleeting though it be that the world offers you riches. That is absolutely true. That there are privileges, and I mean that, and and it's it's a strange word to use perhaps, but there are privileges for being a participant unabashed in the world. And every single one of those privileges will be damned. You can have them here, but for a moment. But the reality is, as Moses is laying out the contrast, as he's comparing the riches of Christ with all the world's wealth, he says, the riches of Christ is infinitely superior. I would rather go out, be beaten and bruised, be in slave labor with those of my kin, submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ, than I would gain the whole world. And as we see Moses choose these things, he is choosing them based upon the fact that he is looking forward to something better. And as we look at this, it's so crucial for us to understand that our aims, our treasures, our goals, Jesus lays this out for us beautifully when he says, where your treasures are, there will your heart be also. Hebrews 11, 26 says this, This is the anchor point. This is the reason that Moses says, I'm despising all of the wealth of Egypt and I'm taking unto myself, rejoicing and delighting in identification with the people of God. Why? Hebrews 11, 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. Now that does lead us to ask a rather simple question. What is the reward? Hebrews 11, again, I think is quite important for our understanding of this, but we can lay out a couple of things that we would know for sure Moses was looking forward to. Moses was looking forward to the very promises of God, if I could summarize it in that way and then build it out. Moses is looking forward to delighting in the reward. That is to say the promises of God. When Moses is choosing to reject Egypt and delight in his 
identification with Abraham, that is submit to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is doing so and believing that the promises of God will ultimately come to fruition. First and foremost, deliverance from slavery and oppression. I do want to place this in the grammatical historical. I want us to understand that Moses is actually looking forward to his people being delivered. I think that the language that we find in Hebrews 11 when it says that Moses' parents seeing that the child was beautiful is not a recognition that their baby was cute. Instead, it's a recognition that there is a promise that is going to come through this particular boy, Moses. And as that is laid out, there is a continuation, a looking forward to and a longing for deliverance from slavery and oppression. Moses is believing the promises of God. He sees this as his reward. Not only does he understand that he's looking forward from deliverance from slavery in Egypt, he is also looking forward to the plundering of Egypt. It is interesting that if he went after all the wealth of Egypt, all of the wealth of Egypt would go out with the Israelites. It's coming out with them anyway. God will plunder these people and that promise has already been made known. Third, he's looking forward to the promise of of the land itself. This is why the name of his firstborn son is so important. He's speaking of Egypt as a land of his sojourning, looking forward to the promised land in which God has said, you will have this. But that is not all he is looking forward to. As a matter of fact, the premise of the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, actually lands, the conclusion of it is in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. The true promise, the thing that all of these saints in Hebrews chapter 11 is looking forward to is not just a better land, is not just particular eternal wealth, it's not just a building made without hands. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 is the crescendo of Hebrews chapter 11. So we must ask, what reward is Moses looking for? Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 tells us this, therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that is to say Moses is included in that great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, again, a clear illustration from Moses' life, and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What are we to be looking forward to? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is correcting and laying out the values of Moses? He wants Jesus. He wants the promised Messiah. He wants the better ruler and redeemer. And again, we must understand that we are reading this from a hindsight perspective from Moses himself. He's telling us, making it clear, the ruler and redeemer is going to come. I have failed. I have faltered. I'm not even going to bring you into the land. But know this, that as I was laboring in that office temporarily, I was looking forward to the better, wanting that reward. Eyes fixed on Christ and the one who will perfectly fulfill fulfill the role of ruler and redeemer. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 is loud and clear for us that Moses was not just looking forward to deliverance from slavery and oppression in a foreign land. He is looking forward from delivery from slavery to sin itself. He is looking forward to the plundering of Egypt. That is to say, the conquering of all of Christ's foes. He is looking forward from entrance into the promised land, not this temporary land in Canaan, but the eternal, true and better rest of Christ. And all of that he knows in full will come through the promised offspring. He is holding on to the very promises of God that are introduced in Genesis 3.15, given to Abraham, given to Isaac, given to Jacob, spoken of by Joseph, and he's standing there looking at the very same thing that all of those men did. I'm looking forward to the promised Messiah. I want the offspring to come. He will deliver all of the promises. I will not. Three applications I'd like to pull from this for us this morning. 
we must, and this is, we must, like that great cloud of witnesses, always be looking toward the reward. Our eyes are so fickle. They're so fickle. The momentary gleam of gold can capture our attention. Uh, the thought of a fleeting moment of, of pleasure from sin will capture the heart and the mind in an instant and drag you into it so fast. It's a reason that it's called an enemy, something that clings so closely to us in Hebrews chapter 12. The simple statement is that we must not be swayed by lesser things. Hebrews eleven six is the introduction to that golden section of scripture that we call the hall of faith. And this is the presupposition. This is what ordered all the desires of the men mentioned in Hebrews 11. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Saints, can I ask you, do you believe that God rewards those who seek him? Do you believe that the reward that he offers is infinitely superior to the riches of this feeble, fail, transient world? When we're looking at this brief snippet, as it were, from Moses' life, how loudly it shouts to us of our present existence. We must, like the great cloud of witnesses, always be looking toward the reward. And in our particular case, saints, we do not say our reward is heaven. We do not say our reward is life forever. We say our reward is Christ and gospel. Our reward is eternal life, not just eternal life that we may live forever. Our reward is fellowship with God eternal, delighting in his presence, feeling the warmth of his rays upon our face, finding rest and comfort there. This is the reward. And hear me, I'll go ahead and spoil it for you. There's nothing worth trading that for. There's nothing worth it. You could be offered all the wealth of this earth. It could be placed in your bank account tomorrow. I'd watch it burn for the sake of knowing Christ. The reality is that Christ is infinitely superior. This reward is greater and it will always be greater of whatever the enemy might throw at you. We must, like the great cloud of witnesses, always be looking toward the rewards. As it did in Moses, tasting and knowing the sweetness of this more glorious reward makes us despise lesser pleasures. It just makes us despise lesser pleasures. As he's sitting, fellowshipping with God, just jump forward with me for a moment. Moses sitting in the tent of meeting, face to face with God as speaking with a friend. You think he missed the treasures of Egypt? You think he wanted to go back, that he wanted some of that garlic that the people always spoke of? They wanted some of this food that the Egyptians had. They wanted back in the slavery where they had a nice house and they were able to rest and there wasn't a wilderness wandering. You think Moses really wanted that back as he's staring in the face of God? No, all of those things are so fleeting and foolish in the light of such glory. And the reality is, saints, this is the glory in which we sit. Amazingly, we can say with confidence, we see even better than Moses did. We have been brought near by the finished work of Christ. Moses looked forward to its fulfillment. We live in its accomplishment. We live knowing that my sins are paid for. I know his name. I know his work. I know of the resurrection. Knowing all of that, how would I trade anything for this glory? No, the fleeting pleasures of sin, watch them burn. They'll all be damned anyway. Finally, as it did in Moses, faith and anticipation of the great reward of Christ orders our affections here. And that leads us to a couple of verses in the New Testament I'd like to bring to our attention. Just two questions. Why would Moses reject power, pleasure, and privilege for the reproach of Christ? The very same reason that all Christians are called to. Matthew chapter 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit? For what, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? It is an easy comparison. If you tell me to give up my life for the sake of knowing Christ, for the sake of the enjoyment of him, he's ultimately telling you to forsake something temporarily, transiently, run, flee from sin. It's a lie. And he says, in doing so, you will receive Christ in all of his splendor and all of his glory. He'll be your greater pleasure and satisfaction. And hear me, sin's pleasures are fleetings. Christ's pleasures are not. Christ's pleasures are eternal. We see this quite clearly in passages like Psalm 16, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, not fleeting, not temporary, not transient, eternal and perfect, satisfying the very soul, all the while pleasing God to our enjoyment. No, we order ourselves after the reign and rule of Christ. We accept his pleasure over and against sin's pleasure. Secondly, why would Moses plummet himself into suffering? And this is rather easy. Moses considered the sufferings of the present time not worth comparing with future glories. It does not matter what you put in that blank of sufferings. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have been afflicted and you will suffer in this life for 70 years before you draw your last breath. Hear me, not worth compared to the future glories. That's not to say that we are not sympathetic with the plight and the suffering, but if we compare it to Christ and his glory, eternal life, perfect, without sin, without suffering, dwelling forever in his light, these are not worth comparing. We have such temporary eyes. We look at things as if they last forever. We have only tasted eternity in the sense that Christ has already come to dwell with us, but we look forward to its full fulfillment. We look forward to enjoying it forever. All of the pleasures that are offered you here are all and only temporary. And so we say these are not worth comparing to the future glories. These sufferings are always, are always found wanting in the light of his glory. So we see Moses' faith as he's looked forward, as he's meditating upon the promised reward. And then finally, we see in this text Moses' first attempt at deliverance. And this is an interesting text because, again, Moses tars and feathers himself. And he does, and we must not miss this. Moses is making it clear that he has taken this up into his own hand. One could say that he is aiming to take his office, take the deliverance of God, and take it by force. So look at Exodus 2, 11 through 12 once again. So the very first thing we see in this is that Moses aims to deliver by his own hand. Exodus 2, 11 through 12. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, he looked this way and that. You notice the premeditated nature of that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses essentially says, I see individuals in the particular plight of suffering. So what I will do is I will answer according to the flesh. And as I answer according to the flesh, my goal will be to deliver them. And that is to say, I think it's fair to say that Moses did actually deliver this man from the Egyptian. Just as a side note, it's a rather weak deliverance. He rescued him momentarily from a momentary affliction. And this particular man, this Hebrew, this Levite, most likely is going back into slavery tomorrow with a new taskmaster who's gonna to continue to beat him and to make sure that he continues in slave labor. Brief, weak salvation, if I could call it that. 
Secondly, he aims to deliver by carnal and natural means, namely with the sword. Exodus 2.12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. In this particular case, he takes up carnal weapons and he says, I'll deliver through not only myself, not dependent upon the Lord at all, I'll take up my sword or whatever weapon he so chose to use, and I will strike down this particular Egyptian. He takes up the carnal and natural means as a form of deliverance. Hear me, nations upon nations have been delivered through carnal means throughout history. God will not have his nation redeemed through carnal hands. He's going to show a greater deliverance, a greater redemption. And I am largely convinced the reason that Moses included this particular account is so that we could have a stark contrast between carnal methods and God's ways. And so as he lays this out, he takes up his own sword, he wars against the people, and thirdly, Moses then, afterwards, sets himself up as the ruler and judge of Israel before the appointed time. And secondly, he has done nothing to receive the office. He hasn't even been God's primary tool of deliverance up until this point. He is simply walking in and saying, I'm the ruler, I'm the judge. I don't necessarily think the Israelite in this particular case was wrong in his asking. Who set you up? And we can answer this question based upon really Exodus 3 through 6 and say, God hasn't set him up yet. In short, Moses aims to take the promises of God by force and fails to deliver anyone. Instead, the result is not deliverance, but shame and fear. Exodus 2.14, listen to what it says. He answers, who made you prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid, and we understand based upon Hebrews yet again, or actually I believe that's Acts 7, that Moses was not fearful of, of Pharaoh in particular. I'm convinced that he is fearful that the Israelites now know that he is a mere man, a sinner. Pink says this concerning this text, God's time had not yet come to deliver Israel. Another 40 years must run their weary course. But Moses waxed impatient and acted in the energy of the flesh. The Lord's time for delivering Israel had not yet arrived. And what is more to the point, the act of Moses was not at all in accordance with the methods which he, which he purposed to employ. Not by insurrection on their part, nor by a systemic assassination were the Hebrews to be delivered from the house of bondage. God, therefore, calls this deed of Moses, which he believed had passed unwitnessed, to become known both to his own brethren and to his king. And you understand that if this method would have succeeded, all of Israel would have been saying, soli Deo Moses. Praise be to Moses, the deliverer. And it's important for us to note in this particular moment, dependence on the flesh does not, has not ever brought about the promises of God. It's never been his methodology if you pay very close attention to the pages of the New Testament, you will notice that he actively chooses the foolish, the weak, and the frail. Oftentimes even using the, the language of things that are not. God does not delight into using the strength of man's hands. He delights in displaying his own glory and power. Dependence on the flesh does not bring about the promises of God. No one survived Noah's flood because they were a good swimmer. Every single one of those individuals, perhaps it is that throughout their years, they mock saying, ah, but perhaps my boat will stand up to such, such a deluge. 
and not one boat would have remained. All would have been destroyed. The promised seed didn't come through Hagar, through the natural means that Abraham and his wife conducted. It would not come through this. It would not come through the, through the efforts of fleshly men and their carnal methods. Moses' strength was insufficient to deliver his people. This is a great moment of a demonstration of how powerful Moses is. And we're all sitting here saying, this is the deliverer? Flesh can only give birth to flesh when all is said and done. John 3, 6 is true no matter where you are in redemptive history. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. The reality is that Moses' deliverance was an incredibly frail and weak deliverance and it was done in carnal methods and would have resulted in the praise, glory, and honor of Moses and Moses alone. This has never been the methods of our God a simple application would be this. Salvation would not come through the outstretched arm of Moses. And you'll notice the language of arm and hand throughout the entirety of the book of Exodus. Salvation would only come through the outstretched arm and mighty hand of God. It is only God who is ultimately able to deliver and to redeem Israel. Moses is a tool in his hand. And it's important for us to note this. Moses is often seen as this one who's laying out his hand, but we've already been shown by Moses' own design that if Moses was left to his own devices, if God's desire was not to deliver and to have Moses sit in the office of redeemer and of ruler, then he would be totally insufficient for the task. It would have been impossible for him to deliver not only one, but certainly a whole nation. And here Moses identifies himself as an imperfect ruler and redeemer. Moses shows himself to be imperfect so as I am convinced to emphasize that another ruler, redeemer, and prophet will come, that there will be one who does not take it upon himself, but is appointed, that his word comes at the perfect moment in the perfect time, that Moses is simply a tool in the hands of God, but the ultimate ruler and redeemer will come and he will be God himself. And he will redeem with an outstretched arm, outstretched not in that great way that we see Moses reach his hands out over the Red Sea, but outstretched upon the cross of Christ, where he would be crucified in our stead and deliver a multiplicity of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We understand that Moses is a mere man that God so chose to use. The true ruler and redeemer is the true God man who redeems to the uttermost. Finally, I do want to note the temptation this temptation that Moses walks in remains to this very day. This temptation to take up fleshly arms so as to bring about the promises of God or to further our calls before God still exists to this very day. That is to say that flesh is continuing to give birth to flesh. Just a couple of thoughts here. First, fleshly works will not bring us out of slavery to sin. Oh, how there are so many ample without number cults and religions that say flesh gives birth to spirit. And God so perfectly corrects it in his beloved son when he explicitly tells us that flesh will only and always give birth to flesh. You want freedom? If you're going after it with your own hands, if you're white knuckling and saying, I can free myself from whatever bondage, hear me, the Lord calls you foolish. It is only through the spirit that there can be actual freedom come. Very clearly laid out in Romans 3, 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be 
be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That is to say that every fleshly means of redemption has always failed based upon the clear revelation of God. It doesn't matter how men aim to attain it. It doesn't matter if you have picked up the sword to war. It doesn't matter if you are aiming to make God like you because you're a little bit better than the guy next to you. You will find that all of your efforts are wanting. The flesh will always give birth to flesh. If you aim to justify yourself by the law, know that you will be cursed by the law itself. And it will be the very thing that will condemn you. Secondly, carnal means will be of no aid. Please hear me in this. Carnal means will be of no aid in the mortification of the flesh and continuation of our faith. You do not get to abandon the spirit as you enter into eternal life in Christ. Galatians lays this out beautifully. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What's so interesting about this so pervasive sin of dependence upon the flesh is it very well may be the last sin to die in the life of a Christian. But hear me, it must die. It must be put to the sword. You have been brought into, you have been rescued and redeemed, not through carnal means, not through the works of your own hand, not through the works of Moses or Aaron or David or Noah or Abraham. You have been brought in, you have been rescued and redeemed through the man they looked forward to. That as they looked forward to the promised Messiah, he was the one who would come and deliver them and bring them out of slavery to sin. You should not ever think to yourself, ah, I will take up the sword again now that I have been delivered. No, we continue in the very same way that we began. Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Hear me, a call in the Christian life is the mortification of sin. You cannot do that while you are doing everything in your power to not sin. The way in which you war against sin is you delight in Jesus. And as you delight in the finished work of Christ, as you have eyes fixed on him, we see the very same thing that took place in the life of Moses. He's not sitting before the face of God and missing Egypt. As we're sitting before our right fellowship with God based upon the work of Jesus Christ, staring in such glory and radiance, we do not think, oh, how I would love the works of the flesh. No, there is something better, something superior. Thirdly, Christ's church cannot be established or built with tools of the world. You notice that what's taking place in this narrative is God is redeeming, taking out his people and will essentially create that nation as they're in the wilderness for a period of time. God's desire to create the nation of Israel most certainly is typological of the way in which he builds his church. He does so through redemption. He brings them into a better land. That is the land of Christ. And hear me, it is so insane to me that the way in which we often aim to build the church is in line with the general practices of the world to build a business. No, the way that the church is built 
is through gospel proclamation. It's through a recognition of the ordinary means of grace. We need no gimmicks when we have Jesus. And that being the case, what do we do? What is the response? How do we war against the world? As the church goes out militantly, longing to see people repent and believe the gospel, we do not offer them a particular bait and switch so as to appeal to their carnal desires. We offer them gospel and trust that the spirit will give growth if he chooses. And the reason this is so important, saints, is because these sins carry over into every single area of our life. We are so quick to pick up fleshly means and methods, but God has forbidden it. And as a matter of fact, I can't think of anything more foolish than when I have the Spirit of God to depend on self. The idea that my hands are strong, the idea that Moses had that he could deliver in and of himself. What a unique folly in the light of the power of God. We teach and we proclaim that God is omnipotent, but the reality is that if we believe that, it will create a very, very uh, deep concept of our own inadequacies and our own weakness, and it will create a dependence upon the holy. And I'm convinced that at the conclusion of this narrative where Moses has worked through this, even as he's working through it in hindsight under the inspiration of the Spirit, the point is this, the flesh will not aid you. There will be no redemption, there will be no sanctification, there will be no building of any kingdom of God by the flesh. It only comes through the power of God so that at the end, no one saying soli Deo Moses, everyone saying soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone, our ruler and redeemer. Let's pray together.